Amen. You guys can uh, have a seat. Uh, If we have not met, uh, welcome. My name is Parker Richardson, and I serve as uh, one of the pastors here at High Point and uh, get the privilege of serving you at this campus, and uh, we're glad you're here. If you're a guest with us, uh, we're so glad that you made it and braved the rain and all of that. Uh, Thrilled that you'd be here with us. Um, I do want to give a few housekeeping things um, before we read our passage this morning and jump in um, to our text um, I said last week that we are beginning uh, the Sermon on the Mount this week. Uh, turns out I was wrong. Um, I had forgotten that we have inserted a week into our schedule so that um, Jose and Tasha Lopez, they're our missionaries that we're sending out uh, to the Middle East here this summer. Um, he is actually speaking right now, um, if you'd like to pray for him, at our East Memphis campus. Um, and instead of streaming that in, uh, talked with Jose, and we're reserving the stream for emergencies and those kind of things. Um, He wants to be here with us. Um, So in the next month or next few weeks, he's gonna be out here and is going to take one of the weeks of the Sermon on the Mount that will actually start this next Sunday. Uh, We'll look through Matthew 5, 6, and 7 for the next 17 weeks or so. So get ready. We're gonna be in there for a little while. And uh, he's gonna take one of those weeks and come out here and teach us through that uh, because he and his wife were blown away. Uh, just as a testament to you at the feedback he got from you, at the encouragement he got from you, getting to meet you and shake your hand and meet your children and the financial support he got from you. So thank you for being a generous church. Thank you for all the ways that you give to them and give to us and all of those things. Uh, We are about to see the gospel go into um, an unreached place uh, because of your generosity. So thanks for all that you do in that area, um, specifically this morning. And... um, All that to say, if you want to watch it, tune in. Uh, It'll be on YouTube this afternoon, or you can wait until he'll be here um, in a little bit. So um, we're going to take this morning and look at a few verses before the Sermon on the Mount starts in uh, Matthew 3 and 4. We're going to look at Jesus' baptism, Jesus' temptation, and really kind of prepare our hearts um, for Jesus' words. Um, But before I do that, I do want to give you an update. Um, We've added a new staff member to our team here at High Point Carville. Marley Meggs is right down here. She's joined our team. Um, We're really glad to have her on staff, which is awesome. Thanks for welcoming her. Um, Her first day of work was actually last Sunday, but that was just a lot to take in at once, so we decided to let you know this Sunday. And then uh, I think all of you have seen or heard, but um, our student director, Chris Rivera, he and McKenna are now engaged. And you guys know our kids director, Neil, he and Elaine are engaged. So God's doing some cool stuff in our staff, which we're really grateful for. Um, Fun time. So if you got your Bible, open it up to Matthew chapter three, and we are going to read Matthew 3, 13 through 4, 11 which is about 14, 15 verses. So um, if you want to turn there, if you want to pull that up on one of your devices, that's great. If not, it'll be on the screen behind me. Um, But we do ask that you would stand as we read this. Um, This is just a physical reminder that we are opening and reading the word of God. This isn't to be uber weird or spiritual, Um, but it's good to wake ourselves up and give us a reminder that this is God's authoritative word, uh, that I am not authoritative at all, but his words are. Um, And it's good to just posture our bodies uh, to remember that as we look at it together. So follow along with me. Um, Matthew 3, starting in verse 13, it says this, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. 
And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Understatement of the Bible right there. Um, And the tempter came and said to him, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Uh, You can have a seat, and uh, let's pray together as we jump in with our time. Lord, thank you so much for your word. God, thank you for your son, as we've sung already about his greatness, his might, um, but also his life in our stead, and his death in our stead. And God, because he rose, we can have life in him, we can trust him, we can depend on him. And God, as we'll see in this text, um, we can run to him for help in our time of need um, because he has done what we could never do for ourselves. So speak to us now through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, One more thing I forgot to mention is that if you're looking for ways to get plugged in at our church, we've got a lot going on. Um, Our spring semester of ministry kind of kicks off next week. Um, If you're a man in here, men's lunch is next Thursday. Um, We've got women's Bible study starting the next week on the 19th. We've got FPU starting next Thursday. If you're looking for some financial wisdom and guidance, Financial Peace University is great. Um, And then our marriage classes and ministries kick off the first week of February on the 3rd. So just be on the lookout for that. Follow us on Instagram, HB Carryville, or go to our website if you're interested in any of those. Uh, men's lunch next week is free, but we ask that you sign up so we know how much food to order. Um, but we'd love for you to participate in that. But to kick off our time, let me tell you a quick story. Um, there was a pastor who um, was married, and uh, he and his wife, um, he pastored a church. His wife super supportive and uh, was a pastor for many years. And uh, one random Saturday is in their closet and notices that there's this shoebox at the top of the closet um, on his wife's side of the closet with all of her things and uh, starts asking his wife, hey, what's in the shoebox? And she's like, don't worry about the shoebox. That's my business. I've got something in there. No need uh, for you to know about it, all those kind of things. So weeks go by. He's still getting curious, like, what in the world is in the shoebox? So he starts asking again, and she's like, hey, it's my business. Don't need to worry about it. So finally, one Saturday, he's alone, and he pulls down the shoebox, and he opens it, and he looks, and there's like three eggs in the shoebox and $220. And he's like, what in the world? Why is there eggs in a shoebox? And, you know, puts it away, throws it in the closet. Kids, this is not something you should do. Um, but starts asking again, honey, what's in the shoebox? And uh, you don't need to know about it. And then he finally confesses and says, well, hey, I looked in the shoebox, and I am so confused. Like, what is going on? Why do you have eggs in a shoebox? And she said, well, every time you've preached a bad sermon, I've put an egg in the box. 
And he's, you know, like, okay, three bad sermons. Like, years of ministry, three bad sermons. He's like, I'm doing all right. And he said, well, what's the $220 for? And she said, well, every time I got a dozen eggs, I sold them. And uh, so I tell you that story. Well, one, my grandpa told my wife that story at Christmas, and I'm still trying to figure out why. If he, like, wants her to start counting or what, if that was, like, a subtle hint, like, just start putting the check mark somewhere. I don't know. Um, but I tell you that story because um, we are about to look at, um, in a world full of bad sermons, in a world full of, I'm not claiming I pre- preach great sermons, um, we are about to study, starting next week, the greatest sermon ever recorded in human history, the Sermon on the Mount, spoken by Jesus himself. Um, and we're going to prepare our hearts for that this morning and look at the person of Jesus and his words and his actions. Um, but I would encourage you to come on back, stick around for this series, uh, because we will look at the preaching of our king himself. And uh, would really encourage you to stick uh, with us in that. And um, we'll do Matthew 5 and 6 up until Easter. We'll take a two-week break to do Palm Sunday and Easter, and then we'll finish chapter 7 after Easter. So come along with us. It'll be great. Uh, Just want to encourage you with that. But as we look at Matthew, I want to give you a few... um, just kind of lenses to look at this gospel through because the gospel writers each wrote with different goals in mind, with different perspectives behind them and what they've been through, um, depending on who they were writing to. And Matthew was a Jewish tax collector before he met Christ, decided to follow Jesus as one of his disciples, saw Jesus die. Three days later, saw Jesus alive again and was commissioned by Jesus to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. And Matthew is specifically from the first chapter of his gospel is showing us that Jesus is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. And he starts out with a genealogy from like the get-go to show us that Jesus was the promised Messiah. He was the son of Abraham. He was the son of David. He was the one that the Old Testament predicted because he was a Jewish man and he was writing to a Jewish audience and he was showing these Jewish readers that Jesus was the promised Messiah. And if you look through Matthew 1, Matthew 2, Matthew 3, you'll see this phrase pop up seven or eight, nine, ten 10 times, which is to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Jesus was born this way, why? To fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Jesus went to Egypt, why? To fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. He was called out of Egypt, why? To fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Why is that? Significant? Because Matthew is connecting everything in Jesus' life back to the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, showing that Jesus was the promised one of the Old Testament. Mark, on the other hand, is all about the authority of Jesus. And you don't get far into Mark before you see that Jesus has authority over demons, he has authority to forgive sins, he has authority uh, over the wind and the waves. Who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? He has authority over sickness. He heals the paralyzed man. He heals the bleeding woman. But all throughout Mark, and Mark's the shortest one. If you wanna read a gospel, feel free to jump in Mark. I would pick Matthew just because we're about to be in it for a while. But if you want a short one, Mark is just bam, 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 bam. And it says immediately this happened and immediately this happened and immediately this happened. And Mark is just showing us all throughout his gospel that Jesus has authority over sin, over death, over demons, over all things, that he is almighty God. And then you get to Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke was writing to one person where Mark was writing to a group of people, Matthew was writing to a group of Jews. Luke was written to one man, and he was a Gentile named Theophilus. And Luke, all throughout his gospel, you see 
that Jesus was good news, not just for the Jews, but to who? But to the Gentiles, but to all nations. In Luke chapter two, we see in good news of great joy that will be for what? For all people. At the end of Luke two, you see Simeon proclaiming that Jesus would be a light of revelation to who? To the Gentiles. You see Luke specifically record interactions with Jesus and Gentiles, non-Jewish people like the Roman centurion. You see Luke, Luke records the biggest or the largest quantity of parables that we have. And what were parables? They were teachings directed to Gentiles. Jews had the Old Testament and the law and all of those things, and Jesus spoke to the Gentiles in parables. So Luke is writing to this Gentile, showing us that Jesus was not just the Messiah to the Jews, but the Messiah to the entire world. And then you get John, and John doesn't even give us a birth narrative. John jumps straight back to how Jesus is the eternal son of God. We don't even see his human birth. We see in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and he was with God in the beginning and by him nothing was made that was made and all those kind of things. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. John goes to eternity past and instantly starts proclaiming that Jesus is the eternal son of God. He's the almighty God. And all throughout John, you see these I am statements connecting back to Exodus chapter three where God reveals himself to Moses and he says, I am, I'm Yahweh. And what John is connecting is that Jesus is God, he's Yahweh in the flesh. He's the eternal son of God in flesh. And John's goal from the get-go is that you would believe in his name. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever what? Believes in him. John 17, and this is eternal life, that you believe in the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. John's focus is to show us that Jesus is the eternal son of God and that we might believe in his name. But each of these gospels have different goals. A lot of them share similar stories. Um, We get the baptism of Jesus in all four. Um, We get Jesus's betrayal and um, being accused and tried and beaten and mocked and his death and resurrection in all four. But then there's some stories that we only get in some of the gospels because each of the writers had different goals in mind in the stories about Jesus that they shared. They were all true, but each of them selected different stories to share in their documents. So I say all that to say, let's jump into Matthew chapter three, and it says this in verse 13. It says, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Now this is not John that wrote the gospel of John. This is John the Baptist, who was Jesus's cousin, who would be the forerunner, who would proclaim, kind of pave the way for Jesus to show up. And Jesus comes to John, to the Jordan, and we see his purpose. That phrase, to be, tells us why he came. Here's the purpose in which he went to the Jordan, to be baptized by John. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Now the verb in Greek that John would have prevented him is um, basically the tense, it's imperfect, it means like a repeated action. So we see John like repeatedly trying to stop Jesus and go, whoa, 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 I'm the one that's supposed to be baptized by you, yet you're coming to me, like, hold on, this is backwards. Why is this happening? And repeatedly, John tries to stop Jesus going, explain to me what's going on. And we can gather that because if you look at verses one through 12 of Matthew three, John's message was essentially repent. He says it in um, verse two, verse six, They were confessing their sins. Verse eight, repent. 
Verse 11, repent. John's message in the first 11 verses of Matthew is repent. The kingdom is here. Why? Because the king is here. So confess your sins, turn from them, repent, find forgiveness in the Messiah. And Matthew's going, whoa, 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 whoa. Why do I need to baptize you? You have no need to repent. What's going on here? And look at Jesus' response. Verse 15, but Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. Notice that phrase, though. It is fitting for us to fulfill. Not for me to fulfill, but Jesus says it's fitting for us to fulfill. And notice Jesus doesn't disagree with John. Jesus agrees that he has no need to repent, but there's another reason why he needs to be baptized. It's not for repentance because he was sinless. He hadn't committed any disobedience to the Father, any sinless act. He agrees with John. He says, yeah, let that be so, but here's why we need to do this, for we need to fulfill all righteousness. And in in short, Jesus is indicating that this is actually according to the Father's will that you would baptize me, so I need you to baptize me, so us, so we can fulfill all righteousness. This is a part of God's plan. I need to be obedient to this, and you need to baptize me. Does that make sense? So he consents, he baptizes Jesus, and then we see this. Jesus publicly identifies with the kingdom of God, modeling for us the importance of publicly identifying with the kingdom of God. This is why baptism is a command in scripture that if you are to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you are saved and then we are commanded to publicly identify with him. Publicly identify with the kingdom of God in this sign of baptism, just like our Lord and Savior did by John. So side note, if you've never done that, we'd love to talk to you about baptism. Stop us at Next Steps on your way out. Um, Come talk to me before you leave. But if that's something the Lord prompts you to do, we'd love to help you do that so that you can be obedient in this way. Um, But verse 16, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So immediately after the son is baptized, the heavens open, the spirit descends, and the father speaks. And we see this big Trinitarian moment in Matthew chapter three. The son's obedient, heavens open, the spirit of God descends on the son, the father starts speaking, indicating that this is the promised Messiah. And we get a little weirded by that, we get a little confused by that, so we move on really quickly, but this is actually one of the most significant moments in the first century, right here. Because all of the Jews that were around and were watching this moment would have known that this was actually a fulfillment of a prophecy in Isaiah. And I wanna read it to you. It says this, Isaiah 42, one through four, it says, behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit on him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. So the Jews who were waiting 
for thousands and thousands of years, who thought Abraham would be the Messiah, who thought David, who thought Moses, who thought Joshua and all of the judges, Solomon, person after person came by. Is this the one? Is this the one that God promised all the way back in Genesis 3? Is this the person who would bring forth the kingdom of God, establish his righteousness and his justice on the earth? Is this the one we've been waiting for? And every single one of those in the Old Testament were broken and sinful and were shadows of the one who would come, but they were never the one. And in this moment, we see God himself audibly and by sending his spirit on Jesus, declaring, this is the one you've been waiting for for thousands of years. This is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. This is the conqueror that's greater than Joshua. This is the king that's greater than David. This is the deliverer that's greater than all the judges. This is the greater covenant mediator than Moses. This is the greater father than Abraham. This is the Messiah that you have been waiting for, that all of the Old Testament predicted. He is here. The kingdom of God is here. Why? Because the king is finally here. And God himself audibly declares, this is the one. This is my beloved son. And he puts his spirit on him. And all of the Jews that knew the Old Testament law that were watching this moment would have known, okay, this is the one. He's finally here. He's the one we've been waiting for. Here he is. And God ushers in this messianic age because the Messiah is here. And I do wanna make some clarification here, um, and I wanna make sure we know this. Um, the spirit descending on Jesus did not make him the son of God. He was already eternally the son of God. We talked about how John mentions that. It didn't make him the son of God, and in fact, it didn't add any rights or anything to Jesus or any abilities. Jesus was eternally the son of God. Colossians 2 says the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. Paul mentions it again in Colossians 1, that all the fullness of the deity was pleased to dwell in him, that the spirit descending on him was God just marking him as his promised Messiah. But Jesus was fully man, he was fully God. The spirit didn't add any extra rights or abilities or privileges, it was God himself marking his son as the promised Messiah. It identifies him as the king, as the Messiah, and it ushers in this messianic age and it begins Jesus' ministry. Here we go. The Messiah is here. My spirit's on him. It's time to usher in the kingdom of God into the world. Heaven is about to meet earth. And you see Jesus' spirit falls on him. And then I want you to see immediately what happens. And we turn to the next chapter. We go to Matthew 4, verse 1, and we kind of pause and we wait um, in fact, in Mark's gospel, he says, and then immediately the spirit led Jesus. Um, but this is meant to happen back to back to back, right after this. Chapter four, verse one. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now I want you to see that. Jesus was led up by the spirit. The same spirit that just descended on Jesus is now leading him into the wilderness, and we see the purpose of why, to be tempted by the devil. That the Spirit of God is leading Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. And I wanna stop here for a second and say that we have to have a theology 
an understanding of scriptures and God that is big enough for God to allow people to experience suffering and pain on this earth. Our theology has to be big enough to allow for that. Why? Because we see it right here. In fact, the only one who didn't deserve to experience all this is the one who's being sent to experience temptation and suffering in the wilderness. We have to have a theology big enough to allow for this to happen. Question, can Satan do whatever he wants on this earth? Answer, no. God is the one who allows these things to happen. And we have to have a theology that's big enough and can reconcile that and can explain that to people. We see in Job, what does Satan do? He goes and asks God if he can tempt Job. We see in the Gospels, Jesus speaks to Peter and he says, Satan has requested to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. We see God in his wisdom and in his sovereignty allowing these things to happen. And we have to be able to answer the question, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Because you and I, I got, I'll tell you the story in a minute, I got this question this Wednesday night from a group of teenage girls. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Or any other version of that question. Why did God allow my family to go through this? Why did God allow me to go through this? And I don't mean this in a mean way at all, but here's the problem with those questions. The assumption underneath all of those questions is that we're good people and that we deserve God's best. But spend an hour with me. Spend an afternoon with me and you'll walk away and say, there's some wickedness in that brother's heart, right? We are not good people. And we do not deserve God's best. In fact, the only one who truly was good and who didn't deserve punishment and suffering and temptation, he experienced it. Why? So that you and I wouldn't have to experience eternal death and eternal punishment and eternal suffering. The only truly good person who's ever lived had bad things happen to him so that eternal bad things wouldn't have to happen to you and me. You see that? But there's this assumption out there that we deserve good things from God. And if you spent enough time, I don't even think you have to spend a lot of time looking in your own heart, you'll realize, you know what? I really don't. Uh, praise God, he hasn't given me what I deserve, right? He gave Jesus what we deserve so that he could give us what Jesus deserves. That's the gospel. But there's this assumption that we deserve good things. And I wanna give you just a, a, a quick theology about temptation. Um, because why in the world did the only one who didn't deserve to be tempted and to suffer go into the wilderness? The one person who truly was a good person, why did he go in? To be our substitute. To do for us what we could never do for ourselves. That's why the Spirit led him into the wilderness. But I wanna give you a quick theology. And, if you want kind of the textbook place, here's where I would go to explain a theology of pain and suffering. Go to James chapter one. And you, don't have, you can flip there if you want. It'll be on the screen. We're not gonna be here um, very long. But I want you to see what James says about trials and about bad circumstances and suffering. He says this. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So not even like blame the devil, right? Not today, Satan. He doesn't say any of that. What does he say? Count it all joy 
when you face trials. Peter in 1 Peter says, don't be surprised. James kind of one-ups him and says, count it joy when you face these trials. Why? For you know, and look at what he says a trial is. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And James says that God in his infinite wisdom allows us to go through trials and experience the brokenness and the fallenness of this world that we brought on ourselves. God allows us to experience that, why? To perfect us. Now we'll never be perfect in this life on this side of heaven, but God uses trial, he uses struggle, he uses pain, he uses suffering, why? To grow us, to burn off, he puts us in the fire to burn off all these impurities and all the things that we put our hope in, if it's our health or our wealth or possessions, status, whatever it is that you're trying to find your identity in, he'll take those things from us, he'll shake us to knock off all the things that we've put our hope in other than him. He'll use the pain in our lives, the trials in our lives to perfect us. We'll never be perfect this side of heaven, but it's part of his sanctification process to grow us. And we all have things in our lives that were painful and you probably wouldn't wish on anybody else, but there's some part of you that says, man, you know, I wouldn't wish that on anybody, but God used that to strengthen me, to grow me, to show me more of his grace, to show me where I was putting my hope in the things of this world to wean me off of my dependence on this world and to fix my eyes on him and the next world. Some of you, you may have come to know Jesus Christ through a trial or through a pain or through a funeral or through something like that. God, because of the gospel, can take the worst moments in our lives and use them for a redemptive purpose. He can work all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. And what's our greatest good? It's not good circumstances or money or anything like that. It's the next verse, Romans 8, 29, that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. That's our greatest good, that you and I would know God. I had the privilege, quick story, of um, talking to some students uh, this Wednesday night. I got to teach. Um, Chris was out and got to be back and share and things like that. And um, we talked about who God is, and I mentioned in Romans 1, um, how creation declares God's glory, like the fact that the universe and the planets and creation and all of that exists just shows that there's a creator. And Psalm says that like each sunrise and each sunset is just pouring out speech to us that there's a God in heaven. And that Ecclesiastes 3 says that God puts eternity on every person's heart, that we all kind of have this inner sense of God as we look around at the world and as we sense the fact that there's an eternity and why am I here and where am I going and what is all this about? But Romans 1 says that we suppress the truth about God and our sin and our unrighteousness and we exchange the truth about God for a lie and all of those kind of things and just talked about who God is and his holiness and the Trinity and other things like that and ended the message like I always do here and just said, hey, if you feel the Lord speaking to you, if you want to put your hope in the gospel, if you wanna to talk to somebody about Jesus, don't leave here without talking to somebody. And we dismissed and these two girls come down front and they've got masks on, so I don't know who they are, but I can tell that they're new. And one of them just says, hey, um, I'm here in Memphis and uh, I'm from Kansas, but I'm here uh, because I needed a heart transplant and I got that at Le Bonheur. And starts telling me about the operation and showing me like a scar on her neck where they just went in earlier that day and were you know, checking up on her and all those kind of things. And her friend that was with her said, hey, I'm also from Kansas 
But I live now in Texas, and I'm just here visiting a friend who's here at Labonner for the heart transplant and is here for the next six months just to kind of make sure things went well. And um, she proceeds to tell me that she finds it hard to believe in God because her dad died when she was 12, and then girl with the heart transplant, I'm not using their names on purpose. I, I know their names, just wanted to make that clear uh, that I remember their names. But she starts talking about how she doesn't believe in God because how could God allow her to go through this pain and this trial and this circumstance and needing a heart transplant and all those kind of things. And uh, you could tell God was just speaking to both of them. And I would encourage you, if you to join us in prayer for these two ladies, but just got to talk to them and say, look, I, I don't discount your pain at all. Like, I can't explain why God would allow you to go through that. I can't explain why God would take your dad at 12 years old or anything like that. But here's what I do know. It might be for this moment where God can bring you to the knowledge of himself and you might be saved. Because God has done something about all of the pain and all of the suffering in the world. He's done something decisive about it and it's through his son, Jesus. And if you put your faith in him, it doesn't matter what pain or trial you go through. You'll never be separated from him and never be separated from his love. And you can have life to the fullest right now and you'll get to spend forever in heaven with God. And God's so big and he's so powerful and he's so wise that he can use broken moments like that to bring us to himself. And you could tell the spirit was just working and hey, can we, they asked, can we stop? Can we get coffee? Can we meet this week? Can we do all those things? So um, one of the friends had to travel and they are actually getting back today. Um, so join me in prayer for these two girls um, if you think about it because we're gonna get... Um, Chris and Liz and some other folks and just sit down and hear more of their story and share the gospel with them again and uh, pray that the Lord might use this brokenness and this pain for a redemptive purpose like he always does. Um, but that's why we need to have a theology that can account for these things because we live in a broken world that's full of sin, that's full of tragedy. God in his wisdom can use all of those things to bring us to himself. So what do we do about temptation? Because James wants us to know that it's not God who's tempting you. Look at verse 13 of James 1. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by what? His own desire. So James wants to be clear. God's not tempting you. God will put a trial in your path. He'll put a difficult circumstance in your path, but God will never tempt you to sin. And we see this in Genesis 1. Here's the test. Don't eat from this tree in the garden. But we don't see God come up to Adam and Eve and say, hey, remember when I told you not to eat that fruit? It looks really good, doesn't it? Are you hungry? Right? God will put us through a test, but he will not tempt us to sin. Someone else comes and does that. And James says, it's the enemy. And each one of us, we sin, how? When we're Lured and enticed and led astray by what? Our own desires. That Satan will come and prey on each of our own desires for glory, for attention, for value, for beauty, for worth, for significance, for satisfaction, for security, whatever it is. He will come and prey on your desires and say, hey, yeah, God promises all that in the gospel, but yeah, you can't feel that right now. Listen to how you're feeling, listen to what you see around you and take the easy way out. Turn to this habit, turn to this thing, lash out, raise your voice. Take the easy way to establish control, to feel significant, to feel beautiful, to feel worthy. Go to this thing and you'll feel it instantly. And he preys on our desires. And it works, doesn't it? 
Because all of those things that we turn to, they do make us feel that for a moment. If it's significance or pleasure or satisfaction, each thing that we turn to, we go to it for a moment. And then it hooks us because it never truly, fully, and finally satisfies our souls, does it? And whatever the habit is, whatever the thing is, whatever the behavior is, whatever the relationship is, the thing that nobody has to know about, you have to keep going back to it over and over again in order to feel satisfied. There's a quote out there that says, sin always takes you further than you wanna go, it always keeps you longer than you wanna stay, and it always costs you a lot more than you wanna pay. And this is how Satan works especially when we go through a trial because we're not thinking clearly. We're just looking at our circumstances. We're not looking at the word of God and the promises that we have in the gospel. We forget that all of those things of satisfaction and security and pleasure and worth and value and beauty, we have all of those in the gospel. We forget that when we go through these tests and Satan shows up and preys on our desires and we go and try to fulfill them in the things of this world and they can never satisfy our souls. And James is telling us that's when you're lured away. But I want you to see, God doesn't tempt you and temptation itself is not sin. I hate to tell you this, but it's a reality for me and it's a reality for you that we're gonna be tempted till the day we go to be in glory with Jesus. You will be tempted until you die. And the presence of temptation is not sin. What does James say? Then when desire is conceived, when we put action behind these desires, when we give into temptation, that's when sin enters. It gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, brings forth death. And then he says, just so you're not confused, don't be deceived, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father. God gives us good gifts, and his wisdom, he allows us to go through trials, but he is not tempting you. He's given you his grace to resist temptation. He's given you his son as a substitute for all the ways that we give in to temptation. Every good and perfect gift comes from him. Don't see this as God tempting you, this trial. God will use this to produce endurance in you, to grow you, to sanctify you, but he's not trying to tempt you or lead you astray. The enemy is preying on your desires. So, mini sermon over. Uh, let's get back to the text because here's what I want you to see as we look at Jesus' temptation. We're gonna look at these three things that the enemy tempts Jesus to do. Um, we see in chapter three and in chapter four and they're sandwiched together on purpose. We just looked at Jesus' baptism and we see massive declarations about who Jesus is. This is my son, whom I well pleased. Chapter three, we hear God's voice. A few verses later in chapter four, we're gonna hear Satan's voice and it feels like it won't ever stop over and over and over again. Chapter three, we see water. Chapter four, we see wilderness, desert, fasting in the wilderness. Chapter three, we see baptism. Chapter four, we see battle with the enemy. And we're meant to compare the two. And here's what's so interesting about this interaction. We've seen God proclaim Jesus as the promised Messiah, and now as the readers, we're, we have to ask the question, is Jesus who he said he is? Is Jesus who God said he is? Can he go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the devil himself? That's what Matthew was showing us. Is he actually who God proclaimed him to be? Can he withstand direct temptation from the devil himself? 
And here's what's so interesting about this. If you know in scripture that Satan has a lot of names, the accuser of the brethren, the father of lies, what's so interesting about this interaction is who is Satan talking to? Like truth himself, right? The source of all wisdom and all truth. So what's interesting about this is Satan isn't going to try to lie to Jesus. Jesus would see right through it. He simply offers him three simple offers to not be our substitute, to take the easy way out, to bypass the cross, to bypass the betrayal, the accusations, the humiliation, the slander, the beatings, the crown of thorns, the ripping out of his beard, the spirit in his side, the nails in his hands. Hey, you can skip all of that. Three simple claims, three opportunities to say no to the cross. This is what we see in this text. It's not deception, it is simply a choice. Take a shortcut and bypass the cross. So verse two, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. We see this clear connection here between Jesus and Israel. Chapter three, Jesus is baptized. Chapter four, he's tested in the wilderness. What did we see way back in Exodus? Israel is saved from Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness. The Messiah baptized, 40 days in the wilderness being tested. Israel fails, and the question Matthew is asking is, is the Messiah, is Jesus going to succeed and resist temptation in the wilderness? Is he truly our substitute? The tempter came and said to him, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Notice how Satan starts his comments. If you are the son of God, what did we just read a few verses earlier? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. If you are the son of God. Did Satan know Jesus was the son of God? Yes. Did Jesus know he was the son of God? Yes. He's essentially saying, hey, since you are the son of God, like prove it to me, since you're the son of God, turn these stones to bread. And some of you are like, how harmless is that? Right? He hadn't eaten for 40 days, which is about as long as you can humanly go before you give permanent bodily damage to yourself um, from starvation. How harmless is that? Well, here's why this is such a big deal. Because Satan is essentially asking Jesus to use his godliness to satisfy his own desires. Instead of trusting in God's provision, instead of trusting the Father to provide his needs, hey, take the shortcut, and since you're the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. You're hungry, right? And here's why this is important. Because we read verses like Hebrews 4, where it says he was tempted in every way, yet without sin. If Jesus were to turn the stones to bread, we would read that and go, but yeah, he, he was God. Every time he was hungry, he just magically turned things to food. Every time he was thirsty, he just magically made a drink for himself. How is that fair? How am I supposed to look to him, the author and perfecter of my faith, and run the race set before me? He just used his God powers to feed himself. And all throughout the Gospels, here's what we see. We see Jesus use his divinity to serve others, to feed thousands, but he never uses it to serve himself. Why? So that he could fulfill Hebrews 4, that he could be tempted like us in every single way, yet not sin. Satan is saying, take the shortcut, you're God, feed yourself, don't trust in God to provide for you, and Jesus resists. 
Why? So that he could be tempted like us in every way, so that he could be our substitute. He's not gonna use his divinity to satisfy his own desires. Philippians 2, though he was in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God something to be held onto, something to be grasped. But what did he do? But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He did not consider his equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, where he could meet his own desires. Satan is saying, hey, take the shortcut. Don't be tempted like them in every way. Don't be their substitute, and Jesus resists. And what does he quote? Man does not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. And he's quoting Deuteronomy. And my question this morning, and I don't say this to shame you at all, um, it is kind of like a, a question that we should all consider and think about, is each time Jesus is tempted in this interaction, he's going to quote a verse from Deuteronomy. And my question is, if you were tempted by the devil, if you went toe-to-toe with the devil, could you fend him off with the book of Deuteronomy? I, I, I couldn't, right? Some of us, I feel like Satan would give up and leave us before we found Deuteronomy. We'd be like, I know it's somewhere in here, right? Um, and I don't say that to make you feel bad or shame you. I say that we have to be dependent on God's word. We have kids and teenagers and ourselves, adults, who the enemy is making a heyday, preying on our desires. And if we don't train up our kids, if we don't train up ourselves in God's word, we will fall prey to them over and over again. We have to devour God's word like our life depends on it because it does. We have to. And we see Jesus quote this story in Deuteronomy where essentially God frees his people from Egypt and he lets them go hungry on purpose to show them that they are not as self-reliant as they think they are. And just like the Israelites, you and I, we love to think that we're self-reliant, don't we? That we've got this earthly world figured out. I've got my job, I've got my health, I've got my skills, I know how to make money, I know how to do these things, I know how to get by. When in reality, we are not self-reliant at all. It is God who gives you those abilities and skills and talents and money, and he can take them at any moment. And I don't say that to guilt you at all. I say that to humble all of us that we are not nearly as self-reliant as we think we are, are we? Our lives can change in a text message, in a phone call, in a car accident, whatever it is. And in this moment in Deuteronomy, God willingly allows his people to go hungry to show them that you're not self-reliant. You are reliant on me. You're not reliant on bread. You are reliant on every word that comes from my mouth. And we need to heed the same warning. And we are completely dependent on God not just for our daily provisions and our abilities and our health and all those things, but to resist temptation, we are completely dependent on God and his word. So that's number one. Here's the second one. He says this in verse five. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now, essentially, Satan takes Jesus up to the temple in Jerusalem. That's the holy city. It's about 300 feet high at the top of the temple. And notice what he adds this time to his temptation. You see Satan say, for it is written. Satan's quoting scripture. And we need to know that, that he is well-versed in the scriptures. In fact, he knows them a lot more than we do. 
And what's so outlandish or prideful about this temptation is literally Satan is quoting the word of God to the word of God himself, right? Like how bold do you have to be to do that? And he says, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And you see Satan quoting God's word to God's word himself. And he quotes it right, that God's angels will bear us up and protect us and provide for us and all of those kind of things. But here's the side note. Look at how Jesus responds. He says in verse seven, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So essentially what Satan is saying is, hey, take you up to this building, jump off, and God's word promises that he'll protect you and he'll save you, right? Jump off and let God's angels protect you and save you. And Jesus responds with God's word and he says, yes, that is true, but it also says that's not how it works. We don't just put God to the test. We don't just quote Romans 8, 28, that God works all things for, those who, uh, for the good of those who love him and then go jump off a building. That's not how it works. We don't put God to the test like that. Yes, that verse is true, that God will provide us and he will care for us and he will send his angels to minister to us and all those kind of things, but we don't test him in those ways. And also, what Satan is doing is saying, hey, here's another bypass to the cross. If you wanna show yourself as the promised Messiah, the king of the world, hop up on the temple where thousands of people will see you and then jump off and let God's angels protect you and you can do an Avengers three-point stance as you land and then you don't have to die because everyone will see you and go, truly, that's the son of God, right? You want power and glory and might. You don't have to die for it. You don't have to suffer for it. You don't have to live the life that people could never live. Just go do something amazing like that and everyone will bow down and worship you. Bypass the cross. And Jesus, choosing not to, once again, says, I will not put my God to the test. I won't do it. And then lastly, Verse eight, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. So Satan essentially cuts to the chase. We don't know what mountain this is. There's not really a geographical mountain that would fit this description. Um, a lot of theologians believe that this was kind of a vision that Satan took Jesus to and says, hey, look out at the kingdoms of the world. I'll give them all to you. Bypass the cross, bypass the suffering, bypass the shame and the humiliation. All you gotta do is disobey your father. Bow down and worship me. Here's your last chance. You can skip all that he has planned for you. Surely he's not good if he would lead you through pain and suffering and trial and brokenness and being nailed to a cross and suffocation. Skip it all. All you gotta do is disobey your father. Bow down to me. Worship me. And what does Jesus say? Verse 10, then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. Be gone. And this gives a whole new light to the moment where, you remember later in the gospels when Jesus is getting arrested and Peter whips out a sword and starts like trying to fight people, trying to prevent Jesus from obeying God's will and God's plan to go to the cross. What does Jesus tell him? Get behind me, Satan. Don't get in my way of obeying my God, my Father's will. Get behind me. What do we see Jesus say here? Be gone, Satan. And in that moment, Jesus chooses to be humiliated and 
to suffer, to be mocked, to be misrepresented, to have his beard ripped out, to have his back whipped and lashed, to have his hands nailed, his feet nailed, his side pierced, his head, thorns crushed in it. For us, he chose in that moment that he would go and endure and be tempted in every way just like us, but he would do what we can't do and he would not sin. He would resist. He would trust his father's will perfectly. He would trust the plan of the father and he would do it in our place. He would do it as our substitute. And he quotes and he says that, um, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil leaves him and behold, angels come and we're ministering to him. And what do we see instantly? We see God provide everything that the enemy was offering. Every single desire that the enemy will prey on, you have it already in the gospel. And he preys on his hunger. What do we see? God sends angels down to minister to Jesus, most likely with food, right? He says, jump off this building and I'll send angels to rescue you. And what does God send immediately as Jesus obeys? Angels to protect him and to care for him and to minister to him. We see Satan offer, I'll give you the kings of this world, the kingdoms of this world. And what does God send? This trajectory that Jesus would go on where he would die in our place, but he would rise again and he would be given the name above all names, the king of all kings. And every knee will bow one day and every tongue will confess that he is Lord because of his perfect obedience to the will and the plan of the Father. In that moment, that's what he chooses. And we see the devil leave him. Angels start ministering to him. And Jesus, in that moment, decides that he would one day experience the wrath of God and be forsaken by God so that you and I would never have to experience either of those things. That's what we see in this moment. Why do I tell you this story? What do we see in this story? We see the gospel. Because here's what's so crazy about this story. If Jesus would have given in to any of those, if Jesus would have took the shortcut, if Jesus would have saved himself, who would have died? us. If Jesus took the shortcut and the way out, then you and I would still be dead in our sin. If he was not the perfect sacrifice who was without sin, who completely trusted the plan and the will of the Father, then you and I would still be dead in our sin. But in that moment, Jesus didn't save himself. Why? So that he could save you and me. That's the gospel. Jesus didn't take the shortcut so that he could be the sacrifice to save you and me. He remained obedient to the Father because we were not obedient to the Father. He went on to die so that you and I could live. That's the goodness of the gospel. He was the greater Israel who did not give in to temptation in the wilderness. He's the promised Messiah. He's the one who's done it. And in that moment, we see Jesus banish Satan from his presence for a moment but we have hope and we know for certain by God's word that there will be another moment where Jesus banishes Satan from his presence and from our presence forever and ever and ever at his return. That's what we see in this text. We see Jesus being our substitute and doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. So what do we do with this passage as we close? We have to realize our utter dependence on God's word. 
We have to devour this word like our lives depend on it because it does. Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And if you think your self-reliance or your willpower will help you not give in to those desires that he's preying on, we're foolish. We have to depend on God's word. We have Jesus as our example. He's our substitute. He's resisted for us. And now we can run after him. And now Hebrews 4 says, we have a high priest who is actually able to be with us in our weakness because like us, he was tempted in every way and he didn't sin. The gospel and God's grace enables us to overcome our temptation. If we know the promises of God's word, if we know the gospel, if we're transformed by the renewing of our mind every day, if we teach our kids this word and the gospel so that they don't fall prey to the enemy's desire or the enemy preying on their desires for beauty and significance and worth and value and attention, all of those things. Hebrews 4, and then I'll pray. It says this, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, here's how we respond to the gospel. With confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I don't know where you're being tempted this morning, but do not go with what you see. Do not go with how you feel. Go with what this word says, that you have all you need, whatever you're looking for, whatever the enemy is luring in front of you to go and get in this world, you have it in the gospel if you're in Christ. Stop looking to what you see. Stop looking to how you feel. Look to the gospel. Look to Jesus himself. His grace will give you mercy in your need. It will help you in your need and it will enable you to resist just like our author and perfecter and founder of our faith has done for us. So whatever it is, take it to the cross. Take it to God himself. One of the greatest gifts God has given us is us. Find some brothers in Christ or sisters in Christ that you can trust these things with, that you can carry one another's burdens. His grace will help you. You'll find mercy in your need. But don't listen to the lie. Don't let him prey on your desires. We obey God, why? Because he obeyed for us. He denied himself for me, so I'll deny myself for him. He died for me, so I'm gonna live for him. We've been talking about substitution a lot these today. Um, the gospel is this. Um, sin, in essence, is substitution. It's us substituting ourselves for God, thinking we have a better way, thinking we know better. But the good news of the gospel is salvation is also substitution. And it's God substituting himself for us. and He has done it through his son. So find grace through him, Find mercy in him, run to his word, meditate on it, live by it, know it, and continue to join us as we walk through the preaching of our king starting next week. I'm gonna give you just a minute. We've been doing this a little bit lately. Um, just to take a minute, you can praise God for his substitution. You can praise him for his obedience. You can confess different areas of your life where you've been tempted. And then uh, just take a moment and do that before the Lord.
If you don't know Jesus as your substitute and your righteousness and your holiness and your forgiveness, don't leave here without talking to me or somebody on our team. We'll be here all afternoon if we need to. But take a minute and confess before the Lord and then Tyler and the team will lead us in some response. So you can pray.